Yeah, so there's the National Academy for Social Prescribing have done some work. So they looked at outcomes and they found generally that there is reduced impact on primary care services through using social prescribing. So it's taking people away from local services or primary care services, you know, the GP, the, the nurse, etc. And it's putting them into a different setting. So there is some evidence for that. So an evaluation done in um, the London Redbridge area. And again, they were finding that uh, um, there was definitely a value in increasing self-esteem and confidence, improvements in psychological and mental well-being, reduction in symptoms of anxiety, improvement in physical health as well, because that's one of the things that we can access. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy, and this is the Locked Up Living podcast, where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. So today's guest is Gilbert Grieve. Gilbert is an experienced manager, trainer and advisor with a history of working in the third sector, but collaborating with the public sector in developing and co-producing services. He's here today to discuss community development and engagement and social prescribing. I'm really pleased to welcome you on today, Gilbert. Hi, it's really nice to be here. Thank you. Great to uh, meet with you, Gilbert. Thanks for coming along. Can you begin by telling us something about your career path? How did you wind up delivering social prescribing? Because it probably wasn't even dreamt of when you first started working. No, in- Yeah, no, it's, it's kind of roundabout way. Um, I left school with no qualifications and did the usual thing up in Scotland, worked in the steelworks for a few years. And um, it's one of these things, it was really easy to get into jobs at the time and it was always, you knew somebody that worked in, in the place so you would get in. So my mother was a nurse and um, she, I got paid off from the steelworks and she uh, got me into Hartwood Hospital, which was a big psychiatric hospital at the time up there. And I worked as a nurse and assistant for what, six, seven years. And uh, during that time, I got married and had a kid and then started to realise that uh, I had to do something a wee bit more formal. And um, I suppose I had the notion that I may go and do, you know, all grades and things, hires and go into nursing. And then kind of firmed it up that I would probably be better doing some kind of social work type activity. So I left in 86 and... Um, I went and did uh, a year in college doing hires, uh, an HNC in business studies, and then uh, went into university to do uh, social sciences. Originally, I had to go into do social work, but I kind of changed course and um, going through and ended up doing social policy, sociology, and uh, left, uh, graduated in 92. And uh, first, I started doing some voluntary work around about 90. And just to kind of beef up my experience in the, the kind of professional side. And by accident, I came across Citizens Advice Bureau. And when I got involved with them, I absolutely loved it. And it just really made sense to me. It was almost like a, one of these moments, you know, Nirvana. I was like, oh, wow, you know, chance to help people to help themselves. And um, that kind of got me engaged in that kind of uh, area of work and uh, when I graduated in 92 I got a job as a training officer working with the mainly young people um, coming out of school with no qualifications and going 
and uh, working in care homes, and we were doing the, the SVQs and care, Scottish vocational qualifications, so I'd be doing some of the, uh, the training work for that. And um, because of my connections with CAB, we managed to get a programme for a lot of unemployed guys at the time, kicking around, um, finding it very difficult getting employment opportunities. So we set up, um, it's an old programme, uh, Community Action, I think it was called, something like that. And um, we recruited young men um, to go and uh, work as, as advisors. Uh, so I, because of my background in CAB, had a couple of years under my belt by that time. Uh, I would do the formal training and then they would go into the bureaus and get the, the, the experience and that worked really well and quite a lot of the guys went on to uh, full-time employment within CUB or elsewhere within the sector. So that was me kind of hooked within the voluntary sector. Uh, 95 I got the chance of uh, setting up a, a new CAB in um, Kirkintillock in Eastern Berkshire and um, that was just wonderful. That was a great experience. Brand new bureau. Uh, nothing had been done in the area before. The whole voluntary sector was underdeveloped in the area at the time. Uh, so it was just great to get in. And uh, we always say it was one of these kind of situations. Nobody knew what they couldn't do. You know, so that meant you could do anything. <laughs> and it was just great. I really enjoyed it. We set up the bureau, um, had it operating within a few months. And within three years, um, we had it. Uh, um, we'd set up a training centre within it as well, the first national lottery uh, funded training centre in Scotland. Within CAB, we'd started doing vocational qualifications uh, in advice work. Um, we were looking at HSC, etc. And '98, I was uh, asked to go and work with the council for a year and do an economic development. And I took the chance and hated it. I was just going back into that kind of environment, which is so different for me. Um, I think uh, what I like about the sector is the flexibility and the ability just to be able to do what you feel was right at any given time. Uh, going and working with the council again, it was very much a, this is your remit, you do this, somebody else will do that. And within a year, it was not I need to go. So, so I went and worked with another voluntary organisation for a couple of years in Ayrshire and doing um, economic development within the kind of social sphere and came back to Eastern Berkshire uh, in 2000 to set up the, the Council for Voluntary Service, um, which I pretty much stayed in. Um, that continued on uh, up until uh, 2017 when I had some health issues and uh, I uh, pretty much had to go at that time. I uh, required major surgery and uh, had a couple of years out and then uh, this post came up in 2019 and uh, it was for me it was really just uh, it's great because I didn't particularly want to go back into senior management so it was an opportunity to utilize the whole range of skills that I developed over the years working within communities working with people working with the uh, GPs I've done a lot of that in the past as well so um, it's kind of accidental but it's almost like my whole life was preparing for this post <laughs> so, uh, pretty much everything that I do within the role um, are things that I've done in, over the last 30 odd years. It's a fascinating uh, description of one thing following on another, uh, Gilbert. And you clearly um, saw or used the citizen advice as a kind of platform for yeah. developing things. And it, and it sounds as if you 
developed and moved off and then came back and it was a, it's a, a wonderful description I think of community activity or which some politicians like to talk about as the state um, but actually you're describing a whole range of disparate services which you developed or were a part of for uh, yeah. other people. Tell us, tell us then what is social prescribing? What problems does it set out to solve? Yeah, so social prescribing is um, it's really... Um, so the process basically is uh, you've got your GP. Um, you've maybe been going to the GP for a number of years. Uh, the GP has treated you for various medical conditions. There may even be a wee bit of surgery thrown in there. And he's got to the stage that he doesn't really know what to do any longer. You know, you're on medication, maybe stress and anxiety issues, or it may be that uh, you've been paid off, you went, you've got your medication, and you know, through the discussion, uh, it becomes obvious that there's, there's other issues there. I think GPs in the last number of years have become more aware that there are social factors uh, impacting on health conditions as well. So they will then basically refer on to the, uh, it's a well-being service, we call it, rather than social prescribing. So I'll get a referral from the GP saying, you know, that we've got them on um, a medication for anxiety, etc. But they've maybe mentioned that there's some issues with um, challenges at work or they've maybe been paid off and they're really worried about how they're going to survive in universal credit. So that would be the referral. I... Um, the original concept was to see patients in the GP practice during uh, COVID. It was mainly phone calls, although in the last couple of weeks I've started going into the GP practices again. So um, I'll see somebody, um, got an hour in the first instance, and it's really just a case of tell me your story, you know, just get a bit of background. Uh, I don't really need much information up front because they're quite happy to tell you, you know. So they'll start off, um, finding the GP practices, things tend to be a wee bit more challenging to get people to talk because you're seen as being part of that structure and, you know, you get the white coat syndrome, etc. So people are a wee bit kind of nervy for the first five or ten minutes and just keep encouraging them to talk. And um, we'll, once we get them talking, can then can we start to identify? There's key issues will come out. You know, they'll talk about their money issues. They'll talk about the family situation. If there's any housing situation there, they'll talk about that as well. What we find is in some of the there's still some social housing in East and Berkshire, but not much. But it tends to be in areas where they're more likely to be neighbour problems. So things like that. We found that 30% of the inquiries that I've been dealing with. Um, have got a neighbour issue, um, problem with neighbours making noise, drinking, whatever. So these are the sorts of things that will come out. Money issues are, are you know, way up there. Uh, we've contributed quite a bit to the, the CAB money advice element and to the, the benefits advice. So start to get an idea that uh, if they're on universal credit, what you make sure they're getting everything on universal credit they can. And we are also starting to look at personal independence payments as well. So they've got a long-term condition, which most of them have. Um, I would be almost immediately talking to them about PIP, PIP um, and just say, look, phone the number, um, say you spoke to your wellbeing advisor, I think you meet the criteria, get the form, and then we'll fill it in from there. Uh, so that's the kind of process. Um, the, see, the first hour when you really get a chance to identify the key issues for the person. I'll do a reaction plan from that. And um, 
There may be referrals on to colleagues within CAB for some of the issues that have identified. It may be isolation is a big issue as well. So we're really saying, look, uh, we've got some other voluntary organisations here. We've just set up a lunch club recently and things like that. There's a meditation groups, um, yoga, couch yoga, all these sorts of things. There's walking groups. So talk about that as well. And if people are kind of minded to, uh, to try something a wee bit different, then again, we can make referrals in. Um, one of the big areas, again, has also been counselling, getting access to um, counselling uh, in the area is, is very difficult. There's a major waiting list. So again, we've got quite a, local, a number of local voluntary organisations that will do lower level stuff. And it's a very basic CBT. Uh, so we, we can usually get somebody into that pretty quickly within a matter of weeks. Um, so we get them on the road, if you like. Uh, I'll then do a follow-up call. Either depends on my feeling on how, how the, uh, the discussion is going. Most of them I would probably call the following week just to make sure that things are running. Um, we do referrals into social work and OT as, as well. So uh, I'll do a follow-up in the first week, um, second week, and then... Third full week, we'll take it from there, de determined by the needs of the, the person at the time. Uh, some of the older people, uh, I tend to do uh, a weekly contact, and that's really just to make sure that they're okay, they've got their shopping, and uh, they've got hospital appointments. Again, we can arrange transport to get them to the hospital. Um, we might be looking at befriending as well, try and get somebody to... Um, you know, just to uh, either do a phone call or a, a visit or get them out for uh, activities as well. So you've got that range of things starting to run. Um, I tend to keep in touch to make sure that particularly um, the referrals have been followed up on. And if that's not the case, I'll phone up and say, look, is there a problem? And in um, some cases, we need to go elsewhere. You know, there's big waiting lists or people are just not, particularly within the voluntary sector. Somebody who's off sick within the sector and the whole service can, can freeze up. So, um, But we've got 400 voluntary organisations in Eastern Berkshire, so there's a whole range of uh, voluntary organisations. And then we've also got the, um, the public sector as well. Um, we've actually, it's been quite interesting recently that a few um, private sector councillors have been in touch uh, to see whether I'd be prepared to refer people to them. And the uh, problem we have that is they want to charge, you know, uh, everything I provide or everything that I refer to is free of charge. So uh, it would only be where we were really struggling to get the person the right service <clears throat> that we'd be prepared to talk about, you know, uh, possibly a private sector referral. Um, one of the other areas where we have some difficulty is getting people um, help for doing housework and things. It used to be many years ago that social work did that. They don't do that. The, the care, hope, care at home these days is they'll come in in the morning, give you a medication, uh, and then if they, have, if they come in the evening as well, it's pretty much the same. They'll come at five o'clock. Um, if you need to go to bed, if you need to help you to get to bed, you're put to bed at five o'clock, and people don't like that. It's just not meeting their needs. <laughs> so um, one of the things that we've been talking to voluntary organisations about is could we set up something within the voluntary sector helping people uh, to get their housework done? That's quite a challenging area uh, because we'd be uh, stepping on toes in the private sector in that, and um, there's all the you know it would be a, a really difficult area to manage. 
but it's a challenge we see that we should be looking at. So that's that's been one of the discussions that I've been having recently with people. Another, sorry. I, I was just going to ask Gilbert, a, a Citizens Advice Bureau up and down England, Scotland and Wales all doing this, or is this specific to where you are? Uh, so we're the only social prescribing um bureau in Scotland at the moment, as far as I'm aware. There are some other bureaus that will do money advice or uh, benefits advice into GP surgeries or any um, uh, other kind of health uh, organisations. Um, the social prescribing was originally set up outside of CAB. It was actually done by other voluntary organisations. I think Women's Royal Voluntary Service in Scotland was one of the first um, so we just kind of came in recently, and it makes sense, I think, um, for a CAB to be involved in this because of the, the range of internal services we have. Um, but most of the social prescribing uh, is done by other voluntary organisations who would then see CAB as one route to, to refer in. Um, for us, it's a lot easier. I can get access. I just uh, do the referral to the, the service manager and... Um, a CAP advice worker is identified straight away. And uh, so all that kind of thing is done a lot quicker. So I noticed Blackpool have started doing it recently um, down south. And I think there's a couple of other CABs I've seen been advertising for um, the same idea. So the projects are seen as link workers. They, they, um, it's a kind of link worker project. They don't actually often identify it as social prescribing, um, although that's what it is, and there is a social prescribing network, etc. And uh, so, um, but um, the, the concept is really, or the workers that tend to be used are, are seen as linked workers. Uh, it's really interesting, again, as well, because um, there seems to be more value on the role of Scotland, um, even although I think England actually um, started this first. Um, the, the posts are um, higher value up here, but uh, it's, it's quite interesting. So um, I think it's the sort of level five or something like that within the NHS pay structure in Scotland. It seems to be lower than south. So concept, I think, originally starting down south, been picked up in Scotland in the last number of years. As far as I'm aware, every local authority in Scotland has now got one. I think we were one of the last to come in in the last three years there. But uh, we've just recently done a report internally, what's the health, uh, health service done it, and the GPs love it. They really like it. It's giving them a, another option for uh, particularly the longer-term uh, patients. Uh, and this is one of the other things. Patients, when they're in the GP practice, clients, when they're working with the voluntary sector. Um, so the, the patients... Um, Again, a, a lot of positive feedback to the GPs. The GPs are loving the project. And um, it was originally for two years. We've just had that extended in the last six months. So we've got another two years for the project. And um, one of the things that we are looking at is the, the feedback and how can we make sure that we get that formalised as well. So there probably will be within the next six months a more formal report done and looking at uh, outcomes, etc., that we can set up to achieve. You're, you're reminding me um, that uh, many years ago when I worked in social services in Oxford, we had a very good uh, home help service who yeah. did some of the things that you're describing. So I suppose in some respects you're uh, picking up the pieces for a lack of funding over, over many years in this particular area. 
Yeah, that, that's interesting because what you would have had previously would be uh, within CAB uh, in Eastern Berkshire, we actually picked that service up. Um, so uh, we have got three or four welfare rights officers that feed into this project as well. But I think you're right. I think the, the whole um, structure of the social work has changed so much in the last 20 years um, that uh, probably social work would have done a lot of this in the past. Um, and um, as that's changed and they've moved more into the kind of managerial role under the Community Care Act, then it's just left gaps. And that's one of the things that sector's good at filling. Mm, thank you. So you've touched upon this to, to some extent, Gilbert, but what do you think of the strengths and weakness of doing this work through the GP? Yeah, I think um, G- the GP's concept, I think, is really good and I understand why um, they originally wanted the, you know, the post holders to be in the GP surgery because you're seen as being part of the service. I think there's strengths and weaknesses in that. Um, as I say, if I'm in a GP practice, I spend 10, 15 minutes, sometimes a wee bit longer, um, breaking down some of the barriers because I'm seen as being part of that service. They probably think I'm a GP. And you can see, you know, the, the body movement, people are, can they go over the place the legs are going? Uh, they're just really anxious. And uh, so I spend a bit of time, um, sometimes even I'm just talking about myself, you know, and uh, how I've been that week and whatnot, just to try and kind of relax the person. So I think we've got a wee bit of that. Um, Sorry, Gilbert. I was just wondering, why do you think people are more anxious when they see you in a GP surgery? What What is it about being seen there that evokes the anxiety? Well, I think it is just the, the whole structure, uh, you know, going and seeing your GP. Um, uh, we know that kind of, the way people have viewed GPs over the years, the way they're treated within the NHS system as well, they've got that major authority, they tend to be, um, you know, I, I, I wasn't at school with any GPs or uh, any sons with GP families, so you don't really, most people don't think you're in contact with them. So there's that kind of, um, just a psychological, uh, social um, kind of um, factors come into play, and I think that, that that's there. I mean, um, I notice when I go into a GP surgery uh, and get my blood pressure taken, it's through the roof, you know, the white coat syndrome. So I think that that's just there, uh, whether we like it or not. And um, I was actually quite surprised when I realised that I had that, because I don't feel anxious when I'm, I'm in a GP, speaking to a GP, and I don't feel that they're gods <laughs> any longer, maybe, maybe 20 years ago. But um, so I do things differently these days. So I think there is just that same social structural aspect where people are a wee bit nervy going into something that uh, they're really not sure. Uh, they can, you can't lose control when you get into GPs because they're in, they're in control. They're the one that will tell you what the problem is. So I think there's all that sort of stuff going on. I didn't notice that to the same extent when I was phoning people in their own houses. You know, I was phoning. They seemed more assertive, more in control. Uh, because they could turn, you know, they could put the phone down. It happened a couple of times, actually. <laughs> so, uh, so I think there, there's that. Yeah, I don't know to what extent other people would make that argument, but I've definitely, you know, seen it and I feel it as well. I think there's, there's definitely that aspect. And I have spoke to a couple of people in the practice who kind of agreed that there probably is something going on there. Thank you. And uh, you, you kind of mentioned already that. Um 
that there's some work being done to collect feedback, but I wondered more generally if there's any tangible evidence that social prescribing works. Yeah, so there's the National Academy for Social Prescribing have done some work, um, and there has been, um, could you bear with me a second, I have something on my screen, I can try and find it. Um, so they looked at outcomes and they found generally that there is um, reduced um, impact on primary care services through using social prescribing. So it's taking people away from local services um, um, or primary care services, you know, the GP, the, the nurse, etc. And it's putting them into a different setting. So there is some evidence for that. There was a report done in London um, uh, 2020, um, and I can't read my own writing, <laughs> where Totti, Fristique and Temra or something like that, so an evaluation done in um, the London Redbridge area, and again they were finding that uh, um, there was definitely a value, an increase in self-esteem and confidence, improvements in psychological and mental well-being, reduction in symptoms of anxiety, improvement in physical health as well, because that's one of the things that we can access. We can get people into local gyms, um, reduction in social isolation, and that's a major issue. Um, improvement in motivation, uh, meaning in life, and again, through some of the meditation, um, yoga. Um, and one of the other areas that really doesn't surprise me is the acquisition of uh, learning new skills. So we've been working with the local authority to try and get people on education programs into college and uh, work related. So uh, the research is showing um, uh, outcomes, improvement in all these areas. That's really helpful. Thank you. And perhaps uh, actually, if you share the the references yeah. afterwards, yeah, yeah, we I'll can put a link to them in the in the show notes. Then, because I think people might yeah. be interested to yeah. to hear that. Yeah. It sounds like one of the other areas. So just, just it relates to that question. I don't know if we come back to it, but um, particularly with the way we're working, there is we would easily be able to evidence an increase in income through the uh, the number of people that are going to PIP and the uh, other benefits where we're available. And one of the other things we'll do is we'll look at uh, other charities that may be able to provide. So, for example, Rafa, uh, we had a, case, a really good case where chap was going to lose his house um, uh, through our health and Rafa came in and kept the mortgage going until we managed to get the pay payment sorted. So so that's an area I would definitely expect to see economic uh, increase in, in um, the, the amount of money coming into the patients. So you can hear that there's really very tangible evidence of it working for individual clients, but it also sounds like there's probably a benefit to the wider organisations in terms of um, efficiency because actually if people are, are having their needs met at this level they're less likely to require um, more specialist services further down further down the line yeah. it might be more costly and I wondered Gilbert do you end up having to advocate for your clients and, and if so how do you manage that tension between representing the client and also acting for the NHS yeah um, I make it clear that um, I'm you know, from CAB, so uh, although I'm, uh, the project is funded by the NHS, I do make people uh, aware as early as possible that I'm actually employed by CAB, so that, I think that deals with some of that. 
Um, I'm not supposed to be advocating on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, there are other organisations that will do that. We have an, an advocacy organisation called Curtis, which is a Scottish word for fairness. Um, so I would do a referral. In practice, yes, yeah, sometimes I, I do a wee bit. Um, most of my people would tend to go to uh, other advisors for PIP, etc. There's a few people that I've just held on to because it would be too... Um, too much anxiety, uh, too much stress involved with uh, passing them on to somebody else. So I do get involved a wee bit on a case-by-case -case basis, kind of advocating. In relation to, uh, I suppose, I've got 30 years' experience uh, being in the middle between the sector and uh, the public sector, so I'm quite conscious of the tension areas where they, where they exist. So we've not had any major problems. You know, um, I show respect to the... Um, any service um, providing that they are um, meeting the needs of their, their patients, their clients, or whatever. So we haven't had any major problem, but I think it is, yeah, there are different cultures uh, within different types of services. Um, even within the public sector, you've got very different cultures between the council and, uh, and the NHS. So I think an awareness of that helps, you know, because if you're conscious that that's there, then you can work your way around about that. And it's not, I think today it's not been a major problem for us. And you, you gave us a really good um, description of your background um, prior to your current role. Is that fairly typical of people that work in social prescribing or do you see a, a whole mixture of, of people? Yeah, I think it's quite typical of people that worked in the voluntary sector. They, they, they tended to um, be in various different um, sectors and then, you know, end up in the voluntary sector. My daughter just recently I started working in the voluntary sector and um, she was in the private sector previously, worked in pubs and, and whatnot and uh, lo and behold she's ended up uh, working in a um, charity, I'm trying to remember which one it is, it's one of the big ones, it's a church, a faith related charity. Um, it's not, not popping into my head, but that, I think that's quite common that uh, People, as they go through their career, for whatever reason, one of the reasons I got involved was um, skills development. And I think that's quite common for people in their, uh, their 30s, 40s. They see the opportunity. They maybe um, went back to, to university or college and see an opportunity of being able to do something practical. Um, the other end of the coin tends to be people early retired um, going and doing some voluntary work as well. So what was the question? <laughs> uh, no, I was asking whether that was quite whether your background of in in, in the third sector is quite was quite typical of, of people. Yeah, so I think sector. what tends to happen is because people come in through voluntary organisations, they have quite a mixed bag, um, and I think that uh, you would be looking. So I'm trying to think of my other two colleagues, um, uh, Jane was a RMN nurse, registered mental uh, health nurse, uh, but I'd also worked in the voluntary sector uh, doing social prescribing. So we've got that mix there. Um, I think most of the people that I came up, come across tend to have been across a range of organisations and, and maybe even uh, sectors as well and uh, ended up in the voluntary sector. And um, when you're in the voluntary sector, because of the nature of funding in the sector, you tend to kind of almost reskill every few years. So it's a new... Um, uh, a new opportunity comes up, you maybe have to kind of add a wee bit of uh, skills development in there as well to be able to move. So 
uh, within community development, you know, you've got a whole range of activities they might be involved in. And you, you spoke earlier about um, plugging the gaps in statutory service provision. I, I wonder if you had any thoughts about this um, this this tendency that there is for gaps to be left and then third sector having to get involved to plug those gaps. Yeah, so it's a, it's a really interesting one. And um, on the one side, politically, it really annoys me that that happens. But on the other side, that's what the voluntary sector do. You know, the voluntary sector, community groups see something, a, a gap in the area, and they're the sort of people that just want to go on and do something to fill that gap. So that happens all the time. Um, there has been more understanding, I think, in the last 20 years, though, that there's a need to fund that when you identify a gap. When I started working in the voluntary sector, it was very much voluntary. Everything was done voluntary. Um, it's not really, I mean, we've, we've tended to move to uh, calling the sector the social enterprise sector these days rather than the voluntary sector because um, when I started with CAB, there was one paid post. Um, and when I when I opened up Eastern Bartonshire, there were two paid paid posts. There's now twenty eight paid staff in that um, same bureau. Yeah, you know? so there's been a whole cultural, uh, economic uh, tsunami, if you like, within the voluntary sector. So uh, although we're filling gaps, I think it's about identifying where something is no longer um, being provided within the public sector. But more often than not, they will find some cash for that. So, for example, social prescribing is funded in most cases by a mixture of uh, health and, and local authorities. Um, but that's not necessarily the way it used to be. Uh, one of the other reasons that um, we're pretty good at uh, filling the gaps and, and supported by the public sector in that is that we can bring in funding from elsewhere. So I think, is it deliberate sometimes that they, they may decide that they don't need to really need to do something because they think, well, um, another voluntary organisation will see that gap and find funding elsewhere. There might be some of that going on, I think, yeah. I could probably think of projects in the past where, at the end of the day, and, and again, over the last 20 years, there's been so much um, cuts to uh, local authority funding, health board funding, etc., that they've had to um, draw back. And um, what we provide predominantly within the sector is what is identified as low-level, non-statutory. So if there's going to be cuts, that's where the cuts will be. They're, you know, there's no loss as far as they're concerned because they don't have to do it. You know, that's not something that's... It's one of these things that's really nice to do that we don't have to. So if the community wants it, we've got to find another way of doing that. And that's, I think, where the, the voluntary sector is pretty good at working with the community. At the end of the day, the voluntary sector is a community. You know, it's it's made up by people uh, that live in the area and have recognised that something that might have been provided previously by statutory provision is no longer there. So can we try and get that up and running? We miss it. You know, we think it's really necessary. And the other side of the coin, obviously, is the new, some of the new service development. Um, I mean, one of the things, and, you know, there's, I suppose, a fear, if you like, um, within the Bureau at the management level that if this project continues to be as successful as it is, the NHS are likely to take it over. You know, there is a possibility that, that may happen because they then recognise that, oh, that service really is needed, it's really successful, we should do that. And being the professional, they could probably do it better than we could. <laughs>
So there is this happens as well. You know, I've seen quite often um, something that's working quite well because of the flexibility within the voluntary sector that becomes really popular, and um, public sector feel that they should be. Oh, that's a service, and I, I get this as well. This sometimes comes from the community themselves. You know that oh, you should be providing this. So that's what happens, um, and then you maybe get a kind of vicious circle. Of, then doing it for a few years, and then it's no longer a priority, and it drops off, comes back into the laundry set. <laughs> that does happen, doesn't it? And uh, it but I find it very happen. interesting this this conversation, uh, Gilbert, because actually I, I uh, started work at a time when statutory services did want to do something. They did want to do things, and uh, yeah. if there was a gap, they would work actively to to uh, fill it. So you know we had. In Oxford, where I worked, we had free access to counselling services. We had a good drugs service. Uh, we had yeah. therapeutic community and outreach services for mental health. And of course, then following that, there was a massive shift of funding away from some of these projects into the uh, the voluntary sector. I'm I'm also thinking that there was probably some demographic factors here in that I suspect things weren't exactly the same in Kirk and Tillock or East Dumbarton as they were in Oxford. So, you know, that there was an imbalance of funding across the yeah. the country as a whole, I think. One of the things that changed about 20 years ago, though, there used to be a lot of European funding that came into local authorities. Into, I don't know if the health board got it, but definitely the local authorities got it. And they would set up community projects, but it would be funded through the local authority because they were the, the group that got the funding. Um, about 20 years ago, that changed, and they, they were no longer able to access that funding. You could only uh, get that funding through um, the um, voluntary organisations going for it. One of the other problems that they had when they were doing that is they were taking on three years funding for the project. And then once they had it up and running, finding it very difficult to let that project go. It's easier if they've got arm's length on that. So I think that's why you may find that some of that's happened, because uh, it definitely happened in Glasgow. Um, we didn't have as much funding coming into Kirkintillock because it was a kind of leafy suburb. So, but uh, Glasgow definitely had that problem 20 years ago that the local authorities were doing all the drugs work, all the anti-poverty work. And then all of a sudden that was dropped um, because they they were getting three years, maybe five years for it, and then they were having to pick up the money. And you know, with the cuts to to their budgets, they just weren't able to do that in the longer term. So it's, it's very sad because it, you know it is the areas that you mentioned there, the, the addictions, the counselling, etc., that um, people need. And as a byproduct to society, I think it's something that's that's needed to allow you to function normally within society as well. So, um, and again, that's why the sector is there to try and, and plug these gaps where where possible. But we don't do it um, just um, because we want to, such as because we feel there's a need, you know. And um, we do. We're always very conscious, more so in the last number of years, about trying to get the the local authorities to come in and support that as well. So. Um, we've been probably been better at that, at uh, making the, the kind of connections between the sector and uh, local authority, health board, etc. So the working relationship, the, the joint working uh, has definitely been 
uh, those that they call it, there's a name for it to protect them in health, um, like any joint production uh, of projects and things as well. So um, they've definitely been very keen to do that over the last number of years. Thank you. So what are some of the downsides of working in the uh, third sector? Uh, it tends to be poor or paid. <laughs> that we don't, um, you know, you, you may be, uh, be in a project for three or four years. Um, we don't focus as probably enough on the, 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 the benefits side of things, to be honest. Um, we find it difficult to get money sometimes, and that money is, is very much about keeping the service going. So we don't. I notice when you know, even when I've been in, in senior manage, management positions, I never really looked after the workforce probably the way I should have, you know, um, because you see yourself as a voluntary organisation. So it brings a creates a different cultural way of working, um, and I, I think that's something that we should be doing more about. I think uh, um, I see it in some organisations. So if you look at uh, even CAB, there's a whole range. Of, um, values for posts up and down the country, depending on um, who's running that, you know, the, the, the board and, and the manager, if they're more focused on getting a reward for their staff, then there, there can be quite a bit of variation. And I do think it comes out of this uh, focus, if you get in the voluntary sector, particularly if you've been there for a long time, you don't, you don't you're not really looking too much at the that kind of reward. I mean, I get a lot of rewards for working in the voluntary sector, um, and I get paid. Um, but equally, just being able to uh, do what I, uh, I do um, is rewarded as well. But we should be focusing more, and I think that's something with the uh, the current economic situation. Uh, definitely, we should be focusing more. But there, I think there there is a quite a variation in even within the sector. And uh, if you look at uh, equivalent positions in the public sector, they tend to be better paid than they would be within the voluntary sector. That's a long-term issue. Uh, and again, it goes back to predominantly you know, 20, 30 years ago, it was predominantly females, it was predominantly uh, retired professionals. There wasn't the same need uh, or demand, if you like, for um, or concern even about well, we need to make sure that, you know, this is at the end of the day, this is reward for what we're doing. So I think that's all the kind of factors come into play there. So that's one of the downsides. But I think that the, the upside um, um, is, I find, having worked in, in different sectors, I, I find the flexibility in the voluntary sector is just me. It just, you know, I find it very difficult working to a very set regime. You know, where you've got that flexibility, the opportunity to go and try and do things. Um, and some people are really comfortable. I've worked with people in the voluntary sector that, you know, you're going to think after a year or two, you're just not going to, it's no, it's no you, you know, you need structure. Um, and there are some posts within the sector, you know, particularly like the welfare rights, where you can get that structure. But a lot of the development work uh, and development workers within the sector tend to be uh, very flexible. You know, they're prepared to kind of uh, and accept that you need to try and do things as well, uh, and that's part of the way the funding works as well. You'll get three years funding for a project, um, and unlikely to get that project funded again unless you change the um, some of the, the elements of that project. So that that's and that's something we spoke to the lottery about over the course. The lottery's been running what thirty years, I think. So we've had that conversation because that is a problem as well that you have to keep changing 
uh, and rather than get really, really good at um, particular um, services, we have to keep making minor changes. So there's strengths and weaknesses to that as well. You know, you're providing something that people really like, and then all of a sudden you've got to make a slight change to that. Great. Thanks very much for that. So slightly um, uh, left turn here with this question, because if we think about how uh, abuse of power has emerged in so many institutions that cater for vulnerable people, what safeguards mm -hmm. does an organisation such as the CAB have in place to ensure that it isn't infiltrated by those who want to abuse others? Yeah, I think um, we probably have um, very similar um, safeguarding structures to the public sector because we uh, were originally partly created through a public public sector partnership. So there's always been that element. Some of the smaller voluntary organisations struggle with some of the, uh, the policy frameworks and things. Um, you have the, in most areas, if not all, the Council for Voluntary Service or in Scotland, a third sector interface. That's their role to make sure that voluntary organisations um, are, are looking at these sorts of questions to support them. Uh, writing policies, accessing policies, um, looking at safeguarding issues, and um, where uh, a small organisation doesn't have the resources for that, then perhaps helping them get identify the resources to do that. So I would say we're probably very similar in our approach to the local authorities and the health board themselves. You know, we've got policies for everything, and um, although we don't have a, a an HR department as such, we buy in that service. And the, the bigger players tend to do that as well. Bigger players in the sector will have their own HR departments. Um, notwithstanding, we have the same problems. You know, that if you look over the years, there's been a few voluntary organisations um, struggled on that as well, but so have the public sector. So to try and answer the question, I think the bigger players probably find it easier because that's that becomes part of your funding stream as well, that you have to get evidence. Um, one of the things that uh, is been really pleasing for me in the last 20 years. There's been more recognition by the sector of the need to adopt um, good practice and particularly um, good practice within the business sector. Um, so the social enterprise model um, is very much, I mean, uh, we, most of the, the voluntary organisations um, in Scotland bought into the European uh, framework for quality management, for example. So that's uh, nine key areas and um, policy, etc., would um, would be part of that as well. So, as part of your kind of ongoing management um, and looking at your your risk assessments, etc., et you would have guidance for the the manager um, and the board as well. Because at the end of the day, most voluntary organisations are companies of some sort, um, so they you know they've got the, the same limited liability if they're breaking the law, then they're going to lose their limited liability. So I think there's been more awareness, more consciousness of uh, these sorts of the need to, to, um, to look at policy and guidance, etc. I don't know if that answers your question, David, but that's probably the best I can do. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 think, I, I think it does. And I think also you're saying that uh, something about changes in culture, which is perhaps making uh, you and your teams yeah, a bit more observant of what's going on. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think I think it is. I mean, I remember going back about 15, 20 years, there was a, a, a group of guys came into the area and they wanted to set up uh, a project to help battered women. And we were like, <laughs> a group of guys, you know, <laughs> helping battered women. Well, that, that's not going to get done very well. And uh, we managed to kind of counsel them, if you like, out of doing that um, with the help of Women's Aid. So it's about... But, but that would have came from their real desire, a couple of guys, real desire to help, but just not really thinking through the implications of that. Probably not, you know, and we know not that that's not the case. So so you do get um, the desire to help very strong within the voluntary sector. And sometimes um, it's just not practical. It's not, uh, you know, it's not the right thing to do as well. So um, we have loads of... Um, consciousness i think of the the kind of good practice stuff uh, because we've we've been bitten as well over the years with organizations you know doing things that have been uh, out of kilter with legislation etc so there is there's, there's in scotland you have every single local authority area has a third sector interface which is the equivalent of a cvs and their role is to go in and firefight uh, with organizations if there's any and problems to make sure that they go for the, the, the best structure that they can have um, in relation to you know how their board operate as well, um, uh, all the policies, HR, um, everything really goes with that as well. Great. Thank you very much. Gilbert, have you seen an impact on your work with the growing cost of living crisis? I imagine that could have really affected uh, your service. I think I've been surprised how quickly that's happened. Um, we, over the last three or four months, I've heard it in the office where people have come up to you and they're, they're really quite distressed. And this is staff, you know, they're quite distressed and it's like, what's happening? I don't feel there's anything else I can do. You know, I've exhausted the normal uh, organisations I would go to. The normal, you know, like St Vincent de Paul are a charity in Scotland, the Catholic charity. They're absolutely fantastic. They provide support to anybody. I went to them a few times and there's no money left. You know, and, and that's I've never experienced that in 40 years of working with voluntary organisations. So even in the last three months, um, I have I've come across that myself. Um, I've had to go to two or three different organisations where previously I would probably first hit, I would have got something. Uh, we're seeing um, it's an increase already in um, severe debt, you know, what we call multi-debt. Um, we're probably seeing an increase in the amount of people we're putting on your PIP, because universal credit is just not sustainable. Um, the, the amount of money people get on universal credit is really a struggle to cope with. Uh, so if you've got a long-term condition, a health condition, straight away we're looking at uh, getting people into PIP. So we've seen a, something like a 20% increase in our workload over the last couple of years, two years since COVID. Um, and what we're finding actually is that that's not um, an increase in outcomes per se. It's an increase in the amount of time we're spending with people. You know, So it's uh, the severity of the... Uh, the problems that they're coming with is taking longer to resolve. And um, we have actually been quite active in the last couple of months trying to get, I've uh, been working with um, a local charity to um, provide cash for people in need. Um, been trying to get them to set up a project 
going into the winter. So we're anticipating we're going to have a lot of people, more people um, than we have at the moment, uh, not being able to put the heating on. Uh, and we have we've had a few cases like that, even coming out the end of the winter there, they weren't able to have a, a, a woman, um, severe mental health issues, physical issues, um, had been in bed for three days because she just didn't have the, the, the money to put the, the electricity on. So uh, really worried about that. And um, what's it going to be like going into the winter when it really starts to bite? So I think in a policy framework we've got to see something I mean, what what's been done so far is just not going to make it enough change you know it's nice to see three four hundred quid come in and people but that is not going to be enough and and even the you know the tax cuts so you're going to have most people an extra 300 quid that's just not going to it's not going to do it how, how do you cope with the emotional impact of seeing so much poverty because i imagine it must be well, it must be awful um, to see people facing those kind of levels of poverty where they can't get out of bed because they're not going to be warm. Um, yeah, how, yeah. Do you, how do you cope with that? I, I don't know, actually. That's a really good question. I probably don't. I think if I'm being honest, you know, we struggle. We've had this discussion. Um, so this is a relatively new project where um, we've been spending this level of time. Um, and I think in other social prescribing projects, um, there has been counselling services um, provided for the staff. We've not done that. You've not been down that route yet. And I think we do need to do that because uh, I, you know, I suppose I manage it through uh, my personal activities, um, going and visiting people and, and uh, hill walking, some cycling. Um, but it, I, I really worry going into this winter. Um, I think we, you know, the organisation, from an organisational perspective, we're probably going to have to do more to protect the staff as well, because um, it is to hear CAB advice workers say, I've run out of options. I've never heard that before in my 30 years with CAB. I've never heard it before. Um, so I, I do think uh, we're going to have to do what we do. I don't know yet. We've not had that opportunity um, to have that level of discussion, but we are going to have to do something. I hear you saying that you use a lot of activities as a way of keeping yourself nourished, despite you know doing some a job that brings you up against some really challenging aspects of society. Um, but I wondered, do, does um, Citizens Advice staff have clinical supervision, you know, to reflect on the emotional impact of the work? No, it's more um, normally it would be work-based supervision. Um, this project, um, I think, requires psychological supervision, and we've been having a conversation about getting that. Um, we've not done that yet. There has been some discussion with um, the health board as well, because I think they've done it for other uh, voluntary organisations. So it will happen. Um, it's just been, uh, there's been real strains on our management team in the last wee while as well. There's been a bit of ill health there. Um, so I think that the staff um, are conscious of that as well that uh, we probably sh could be pushing a bit more for that. And I think it is it's necessary and it needs to come, but it's, n it's not there yet. So, um, But it's not normally within CAB, it would just be work-based supervision. Um, and I think uh, this project, having worked in every aspect of CAB, this is a, a very different way of working with our clients than uh, the normal. You know, so normally with CAB, a person comes with a problem and you help them fix that problem and you don't see them again. 
Now that's not the way we're operating. We're ongoing, we're triage, um, and because they're building a relationship with us, they'll come back to us. So even when they've got another problem, we're finding that rather than going to the GP, they'll come straight back to the, the wellbeing advisor, uh, which is fine because we just log them back into the system. And um, quite often it is uh, even um, a few kind of, uh, uh, kind of consumer-based inquiries and things like that. So people are seeing that as a, a kind of quick way into the CAD service as well. Um, so... And it's it, it's great that you find that hill walking and cycling really feeds you and keeps you nourished to, to cope. Have you got any advice for our listeners about how to cope with working with more challenging aspects? Yeah, I, I use mindfulness a lot as well and a lot to need uh, psychological processes. And I think it is about finding what works for you as well, though. Um, and I know a lot of people will, will deal with that in, in very personalised ways. So. Um, I think just look at, you know, finding um, something that uh, allows you to kind of take your mind away from whatever it is you're dealing with. Um, I'm probably not the best in the world for, <laughs> for doing that, you know, because, I, but again, that's my way of coping with things, trying to think through uh, the political options as well. And quite often I'll get in touch with politicians that I know and say, look, you know, you're going to have to think about what you're doing here and how that works and how that's impacting on so, but that's me, you know, I just like to deal with things in that, in that particular way. Uh, I don't always find it easy switching off. <laughs> but, Thank um, you, Gilbert. It's been great to talk to you today. Really interesting. Yeah, thanks very much uh, for, for giving me the time. It's been, been great to, to talk about the service. You, you'll probably notice that I really, really love what I'm doing, you know, and I think it is uh, the opportunity to be able to help people to help themselves is really, for me, what life is about. So, thanks. Thank you, Gilbert. Really nice to meet you. And you, David. My pleasure.